There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It doesn't matter what we say about we want to support X community or Y community. If they don't believe that, if the perception is that we don't actually want to deliver, then we're going to be fighting an uphill battle. Hi and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. Are the Conservatives doomed by demographics? With younger people and BME voters apparently rejecting the party, what can the Tories do to turn things around and put together an election-winning coalition, not just for the upcoming poll, but for the many to come in the future? That was the question facing the panel for our CapEx Live debate at the Tory conference in Manchester last week. I invited Tory activists Eleanor Bunbury and Resham Katecha, along with polling supremo Joe Twyman, to chat about the challenge ahead, the perils of tokenism, and how the party can truly offer something for everyone. And we'll kick off, Joe's going to give a bit of an overview, and then we'll move on to our other speakers, we'll have a bit of a discussion, and then 15 to 20 minutes of questions that are actually hopefully questions, um, as ever. So without further ado, I'll give you uh, Joe Twyman. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, So, doomed by demographics. Uh, I'm going to talk about age, I'm going to talk about ethnic minorities, and I'm going to talk about uh, LGBT plus communities. As a heterosexual white man, I am, of course, infinitely qualified to talk about all of these things. I want to start by pointing out that Youth voters, young voters, are Labour's secret strength. And we know that to be true because they said so in the Times. Uh, They said so in the Times, but not just any Times article. Instead, it was a Times article writing up the findings of a major academic book. That book was Political Change in Britain, written by two of the most significant political scientists in the world. That book discovered, among other things, that young voters were, to quote the Times, Labour's secret strength and would turn the party into an electoral force. There was a problem with that analysis uh, and it's really clear when you hear where that headline comes from. That headline and the book were published in 1969. After 1969, of the following eight general elections, the Conservative Party won the most votes in seven. And so the secret strength that had been promised by the analysis of elections in the 60s and the post-68 change in demographics, in society, really didn't bear fruit for the Labour Party then. And what that is, is a reflection of what we call an age effect. In data analysis, we're always interested to identify the change, the changes over time. Are those changes talking points or turning points? And what causes them? Are they caused by what we call age effects, what we call cohort effects, or what we call period effects? And I'm going to go through each one of those in turn. Age effect is a really simple concept. As you get older, your views evolve and change. Think of it in terms of radio. When you're young, you listen to, I don't know, Radio 1 Extra. 
I'm probably talking to the wrong audience in that respect. You listen, when you're young, you listen to Radio 5, and as you get older, you listen to Radio 4. No, you listen to Radio 1 and Radio 6 and Radio 1 Extra and Capital and all these other things that are completely oblivious to me. And as you get older, your tastes, your feelings, your views evolve, and you change to perhaps Chris Evans on Virgin Radio, Zoe Ball on Radio 2 in the mornings, or perhaps the Today programme, even though John Humphreys has left. And that's an example of how things change, and politics can change like that. It's something we've seen very distinctly in the last election. Or have we? The crossover point is 47 years of age. 19% of the youngest voters in the electorate voted Conservative. 19% of the oldest voters in the electorate voted Labour. For every 10 years that you get older, the likelihood of you voting Conservative rises by 9%. For every 10 years you get older, the likelihood of you voting Labour falls by 9%. And once you reach 47 years of age, the crossover happens. But... That doesn't mean that you wake up on your 47th birthday, having been a committed Corbynista, and think, you know what, that Boris Johnson, he's got it right, I'm changing my mind. We don't know how it's working nowadays in the same way that Butler and Stokes, arguably the godfathers of political science, didn't know how things were working in 1969. And so it may be that as this generation of voters who are so heavily leaning towards Labour in the younger years, it may be that they evolve into Conservatives as they get older. But that may not be the case. It may be that they stick with Labour, a cohort effect. In other words, they stay as Labour and keep voting Labour as they get older, replaced in the electorate by new voters who vote Labour. It may be a period effect. Something about this period of time is unique that means that those are the results we're seeing. And another unique period next election, whenever that may be, next week, month, year, whenever, that could be different again. The point is we don't know. And there's lots of things, actually, we don't know about the demographic votes. We don't know how things are changing. We know that when it comes to Brexit, there's another age effect. But all the data that we have so far suggests that is a cohort effect. And as people are getting older, only just two or three years older, but older nonetheless, they're staying with their vote from last time, in most cases. Obviously, certain exceptions for Conservative ministers. But generally speaking, as people get older, they stick with their vote on that. And that has had an effect on the overall result, as younger people enter the electorate and older people as we euphemistically say, exit the electorate. That's why there's been a change. That's the main driver of the change that we've seen in votes there. So we don't know, as pollsters and as, uh, as political scientists, we don't know what will happen with age going forward. But it could be a time bomb for the Conservatives. And there's no doubt about that, particularly with the Brexit element But we don't know how that will play. And what we also don't know about is ethnic minorities. There's very little decent data on ethnic minorities. The 2010 British election study, ethnic minority boost, is the best and really the only decent data that we have from recent years. And that shows that 21% of Labour votes come from ethnic minorities compared to 5% of Conservative votes. So there's a difference there. But there's also an age effect that happens among ethnic minorities and even referring to ethnic minorities, making that generalisation as if they're all the same is a bad idea, just in the way that all young people and all old people are the same. It's not true. In 1996, 74% of Asian Americans in the presidential elections voted for Bob Dole. By the time Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running for office, it was the same figure voting for the Democrats. You can see shifts. <laughs> you, can, you can see shifts in ethnic minority. I really hope that's not a hospital trolley. 
you can see shifts in ethnic minority voting taken as a whole, and within specific groups you can see shifts in ethnic minority voting. Since the 1970s, the Conservative, the Conservative Party has done a major effort to try and recruit voters from the South Asian community. And they've been far more successful among that ethnic minority group than other ethnic minority groups. And then there's the LGBT plus community. What do we know about their voting? Virtually nothing in terms of decent information. Uh, and I say this as someone who has written not one, but six chapters in academically rigorous books on the relationship between sexual behaviour and political voting intention. Available from all good Amazons, Sex, Lies and Politics, out now. And so there's a lot of bad data out there. There's a lot of uncertainty. But there are indications of the potential that the demographic changes have. But what I would say to everyone, whether it's an audience of Conservatives or the audience of Labour that I spoke to last week, is in this era where Brexit casts a cloud over everything and the voting dynamics around Brexit are very different to the voting dynamics around party political voting, nothing can be taken for granted. It may be an age effect. It may be a cohort effect. It may be a period effect. But in actual fact, it's likely to be a mixture of those for different people. So is there a demographic time bomb? Maybe. Will it go off? Perhaps. And I'd like to thank you for allowing me to get away with saying very little of actual substance throughout my introduction. Thank you. I don't want to be the, um, the first person to knock the standover, but it might happen. Um, hi, so I'm Eleanor. I'm the Vice Chair Communications for LGBT Conservatives, and I'm also the youngest approved parliamentary candidate for the Conservative Party. Um, so I do not have the scientific statistical background like my colleague here, so I'm very sorry you're not going to get that from me. But what I'm going to try and do is more of an overview about how Grouping by demographics can really cost people elections, and we have seen that. Um, so I think the main things I want to focus on first is getting you guys involved, which will normally always backfire on me, so let's hope that doesn't work. Please actually get involved, or I'm going to look very silly up here. Um, so put your hand up if you want to have control over your own money. Yeah, that's quite like, Put your hand up if you want to have control over what school you go to. Or if you want to have a say on healthcare treatment that you get. So nearly everyone is putting their hands up, but nearly everyone is different. Different races, sexualities, ages, gender. And I think that shows that even just a quick sample in this room, you can't neatly pocket people into things because at the end of the day, we all just want to be happy and have control over our own lives. Well, I mean, I hope you want to have control over your own lives because you're conservatives, but we'll leave that. Um, and I think one thing that our party in general really needs to focus on is not necessarily uh, personal demographics, such as race, gender, etc., but more locational demographics. So, for example, the bitter northerners like myself, we want our infrastructure, we want our transport, and that would be a vote winner. Not, not a vote winner for ages, not a vote winner for genders, but a vote winner because the north feels like it's been forgotten, like everyone claims that certain demographic groups of people do. Um, so, like you said about LGBT plus community, I'll be honest, as gays, we're very unpredictable. Uh, so probably quite hard to group. But, <laughs> yeah, never, never that rational. But I think when we all look around parties, it's kind of an ongoing joke that, like, what, 60% of the Conservative Party is probably gay, but then the same in Labour. And politics does seem to attract LGBT plus community. I don't know why, but it does. And I think... The main issue with that is that when you have people who are LGBT, and I've felt it myself, is that instantly people think, oh, so all you care about is trans rights, all you care about is PrEP. And it's like, yes, that's something I care about, 
but I still have a life and have a job and pay for transport and pay for petrol. So when you marginalise people into what you think they are, for example, people who are BME are always told, oh, so you're going to go fight that issue. Well, no, they might care about tax. And that's the issue we have, that we need to stop telling people that because they look a certain way or they feel a certain way that this is what they need. We need to focus instead on just getting sound policy and stop tokenizing people because far too often it feels like for example rory stewart um there was a photo of him with lots of white people looking really happy and then there's a photo of him with someone who's black and he genuinely looked like he would rather be anywhere else and then the next day his twitter profile picture is him with someone who's black like seems pretty well pointed and it's we're playing into these demographics and falling into these traps so that will be all we focus on and the points that were raised earlier about age like when does it transition when does it move over i know i'm one of the odd ones i'm 22 um, and i've been a conservative since i was about 16 uh, one of the only ones in my politics class which made me very resilient which is a good life skill But age is something that we fall into all the time. So many parties do. So because you're young, all you care about is tuition fees. All you care about is your bus pass. When in reality, no, because so many people don't go to university. So many people might own their own business, might be parents, might be carers. And I personally think that if we just keep focused on demographics, we're going to lose. And to finish up, one of the points about the vote leave strategy or does going down this Brexit route of Brexit heavy strategy, is that going to lose people for us? And yeah, it will. Because quite often if people want Brexit, they're going to go vote the Brexit party or UKIP if they're still around and functioning. But I think our party, people underestimate how many people actually voted Remain and how many people want Remain. So if we go down this vote leave, like rah, rally, we're going to lose people and we need to stop grouping people just on Brexit and get back to focusing on domestic policy and the policies that will actually win us elections. Thanks. Thanks very much, Anna. And uh, just to finish off our sort of panellist speeches, Brescia uh, Thanks. Um, As you'll be able to tell very shortly, I have been super committed to conference this year, so do forgive the fact I'm croaking at you and give me a wave if I give out at some point and you can't hear me at the back. Um, So as you can tell, um, I am... Indian origin. Uh, I'm female and now that I've gone after Ellen I've had to add an ish to the young ish that I was going to say I was. Um, And so this makes me a minority as a Conservative voter, as a Conservative candidate. Um, And I, in 2015, when I stood the first time, I was 25, I would go knocking on doors. I was all dressed in blue, um, you know, signalling, very important, right? And I would knock on doors, hand over a leaflet that had so many pictures of myself I got sick of seeing my own face I had a t-shirt on that said conservative candidate with a picture of my own face on it Um, I made some poor decisions Um, and I would knock on doors and say I'm your conservative candidate blah 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 and people would kind of you know half concentrate look at the leaflet look at me in my blue coat my blue gloves um, and then they go wait a minute this is you I'd go yes and they'd say but this is for the conservatives and I'd say yes and then they'd go but you're brown And I was like, well, yes, your powers of observation are are on point. Um, And they just could not quite believe that a brown woman under 30 was standing there knocking on their doors, asking them to vote for the Conservatives. Um, And and it was a really interesting experience to me because I'm from northwest London, lots of BME people there. I stood in south London, lots of BME people there. And they were really, really amazed that the Conservatives didn't just say they wanted to support BME people, but they actually had one knocking on their door. It's something that we've got to think about a lot when we hear some of the statistics, and I've got a few more for you. Um, I'm a data geek, so I couldn't just listen to them. I had to come up with some of my own. Um, We have to think about what people think of our party because it doesn't matter what we say about we want to support X community or Y community. If they don't believe that, if the perception is that we don't actually want to deliver, then we're going to be fighting an uphill battle. When it comes to young women, only 8% of young women say that they'll vote Conservative. In 2017, amongst first-time voters, those who were 18 or 19, Labour was 47% ahead. And we do read studies uh, that say that people are much less likely to change the way they vote once they start voting for a political party. 
roughly three quarters of the BME community, and that is, you know, there are many communities within that, but roughly three quarters vote Conservative and about 17% vote Conservative. Um, as you pointed out, the one minority group that did increase its vote for the Conservative Party significantly um, was that of British Indians, Hindus in particular. Um, and, you know, a lot of the messaging, there was a lot of work that went in from David Cameron's government and from Theresa May's to try and reach out to that community. So it does show with enough work, with enough focus on policies, with enough understanding and nuances, we can reach out to BME groups. What's really interesting, I'll speak louder now that I'm competing with the trolley, once the ethnic minority population of a constituency reaches 30%, it becomes almost impossible for us to win it. Uh, this is Lord Cooper who said this when he, he was David Cameron's chief strategist. In 1987, there were no constituencies in the UK that had that 30% BME population. The estimate is that in three years' time, there could be as many as 120 constituencies that have more than 30% mixed or BME populations. In 2010, there were 110 constituencies with 30% BME population. We won 27 by 2015, that had fallen to 24. And by 2017, that had fallen to 16. If we'd managed to do as well in those seats in 2017 as we did um, in 2010, think about our majority. By, 2000, by 2051, 20 to 30% of the population is estimated to, is estimated to be non-white. I spend a lot of time speaking to BME voters um, of all backgrounds, but particularly my own, to ask why they don't vote Conservative. Often I'm talking to people who are first or second generation. They came to the UK with almost nothing. They've worked incredibly hard, got themselves through school, often through university. They've set up small businesses. Aspiration, hard work, home ownership. It's like the Conservative dream, yet they're not voting for us. And when I ask why, they say three things. One, the rivers of blood, even though most people in my generation were born after that. Two, the Tebbit test. Um, lots of them still think being asked to choose a British team over an Indian team or a Pakistani team and being told that that affects how British they are is racist. And three, Windrush. Small, um, kind of so much more has been done over the past 40 years, but these are three big issues that have taken us backwards in our work with BME voters. Um, so... Just to think about the fact that we've heard about young people, we've heard about women, we've heard about BME people, and if we don't take serious steps to tackle each of the groups that we are no longer hitting, uh, we're going to struggle to keep a majority in the future. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thanks very much to all our panellists. Um, I'm going to kick off with a few questions, and we're going to throw it open to the floor. And when that time comes, I just ask that you be pithy with your questions, as all the chairs seem to ask. Um, I'm interested... Um, Joe, what do you think of this idea... So, Eleanor was saying, for example, that the Tory party needs a broad 
domestic agenda that applies to all people and that everyone can see that they're on their side, that they, you know, they want to make their lives better. And, uh, do they have that kind of message at the moment? Because it seems to be very geared towards certain sections of the population. Goodness, how long have you got? I mean, I could do, I could do an entire panel. Or, in fact, I did do an entire panel on this at the Labour Party conference. Lucky me. Uh, what, I would, um, what I would say is, I would take a step back and say, the people who voted to leave in the European Union are not all one group. And you cannot appeal to that group simply by one single policy or set of policies. But what we do know about that group is that a substantial proportion within it voted to leave the EU not just because they were disappointed with the European Union, but because they were disappointed, dissatisfied and distrusting, not just of politicians or political parties, but of the political process and the political establishment in general. And nothing that has happened in the three years since the referendum has basically changed that group's mind. Uh, there are people, who, and it's a lazy generalisation to talk about people who are left behind because it's far more complicated than that. And often when people talk about left behind, they talk about left behind in purely in economic terms. But there are people who feel that the world has moved on in a way that they are not comfortable with and they did not consent to in terms of economics, in terms of cultural changes, societal changes, even, uh, even religious changes. Uh, and so all of these things can have an impact and it strikes me that any party that wishes to succeed needs to address those concerns and Brexit as well in either direction if it's, uh, if it's to stand a chance of success. I also just want to come back on something that was alluded to um, by pretty much all of our speakers, and that's this idea of kind of cultural memory and historical artefacts that are influencing the way people vote, particularly in parts of the north, the post-industrial north. I wonder what the panellists think about the best conservative message to convince people that, you know, that the party is acting in good faith, because that often is a barrier for these people. They don't think the Tories have their interests at heart. Yeah, um, I think that happens often, and I genuinely think a lot of that isn't necessarily even about the policy, but about branding. It's about branding our party away from the message that we still quite often have of the private school, tweed, etc. And I think it isn't necessarily about the policy we have, but showing that it is an inclusive party, and it is a party where it live. I don't sound posh, I don't know if you've noticed that by now, but I think people need to get that message and it is all about the branding and the people who are giving the messages to ensure that people know that this party is open and it is welcoming and it's not for rich, posh people, it's for people who want to better themselves. But what's the sort of conservative, authentic solutions that you don't want to go down the Labour route of having enforced shortlists or anything like this? No, absolutely right. not and it makes me shudder to even think of they're the most patronising things ever like, I don't need a man to step aside so I can win no, none of that. Um, but I, I definitely don't want to go down the tokenism side. I am very much a firm believer in meritocracy. But it is just about having the message out there. So I know everyone's probably seen in a school textbook, you look on a page and there's someone in a wheelchair, someone brown, someone black, and a lesbian couple raising an adopted child. Like, they show every demographic. And yeah, everyone sees it as tokenistic, but it's about showing case studies. It's about using case studies of the ordinary people. There's someone who bought their own business or someone who's started working for the first time and gotten off benefits. And it's showing real-life case studies that can attach to the policies so people can understand them and relate to them better and show that that can be them. They can see themselves in those shoes. Um, I mean, Rasha, have you been out on the doorstep a hell of a lot in the last mm -hmm. few years? I mean, what do you think works for you in terms of convincing not just wavering voters but people who are actively anti-conservative uh, so well the anti-conservative um, one in a way is easier you knock on a door and you can tell you've either got someone who does not want to be convinced and will never vote your way in which case what you're really trying to show them is that you are human you are not you know the devil reincarnate um, and that you are someone that they can at least make peace with. So there it's not preaching. Actually, with anyone, it's not preaching. I never like to say to people, but this is why you should vote Conservative. Um, often the best thing to do is to just keep saying why. I mean, you kind of feel a bit like a five-year-old, but, oh, I don't like the Conservatives, they don't care about people. 
why? And then they say, because of X, Y, Z. And you say, oh, but actually it's this. And they say, oh, okay. But they've also done X, Y, Z. And you come back and it's actually people often have ideas in their head that may have been true 30 years ago. I mean, it's very difficult to erase um, the way you remember something, especially if you're not engaged in politics on a day-to-day basis. That's what you think it was. You need to be given the opportunity to see that, yes, you might not want to vote Conservative, but you might be open to it. Um, And then for people... On the doorstep, actually, I found, and I would never want to be selected or elected just because I ticked boxes for people, but words are cheap and actions are stronger. I mean, I have family friends who are not interested in politics at all. What has been making the rounds for the past 24 hours non-stop has been Sajid Javid standing on the stage at conference talking to his mum in Urdu. What a powerful, powerful message. The first BME Home Secretary, the first BME Chancellor standing in Manchester talking to his mum in a different language. I mean, that is more powerful than anything and that is all people are talking about. Not what policies he's announced or what policies anyone's announced, just that we are showing, not saying, that we are the party for everyone regardless of your background. So I think it's really important to make sure when you switch on a TV um, that when you look at the news, we don't just have white MPs talking or men talking. You have to show the diversity within the party so that people realise that we are actually different to the party we were when they first came to this country or when they were young. And Joe, you wanted to come in on that idea of kind of cultural politics as well. Well, cultural memory and, uh, and yeah. the idea that these stories, uh, these stories stick. But for most people, the average person out there, well, not the average person out there, but the average person in the electorate and the 50% of people less engaged than the average person in the electorate, they're not interested in the specifics of government policy. They're not interested in the cut and thrust of Prime Minister's question time. Instead, what they're interested in are broad narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves and each other. And sometimes these stories can last a long time, particularly with certain groups. And you only have to look back in relatively recent Conservative history to see the impact that that can have. In 1992, and I'm going to play the veteran pollster card now, in 1992, that's right, kids, the first election that I worked on... um, the Conservatives crept over the line with an unexpected victory. Uh, it was a surprise victory, but it wasn't a large victory. And that was swiftly followed by uh, Black Wednesday and all the economic turmoil around that. Uh, that destroyed the reputation that the Conservative government had for economic competence. And they didn't win a majority for 23 years. Such was the power of that narrative. And if I were to say anything to the Conservative conference and indeed Conservative supporters, it would be beware of the power of those long-lasting narratives because Brexit has the potential among some communities to have that kind of impact. And... Who knows what will happen at the next general election, whenever that may be. Certainly, it's, I would say, a massive gamble for all sides at the moment. But if Brexit is delivered in whatever form, by whatever party, the result of that, be it good or bad, could have a long-lasting effect that could be very difficult to shake off among certain groups. Okay, so we think the idea of uh, getting Brexit done might be a bit optimistic. In, I would say it's context. a bit simplistic, but then, of course, political messages should be simple to understand. So it's, uh, it's a hugely difficult and complicated situation, but I don't think I'm the first person to point that out. <laughs> OK, um, I'll take questions from the floor now. Can we have them in uh, twos? Uh, Eamon will be coming round with the mic. Um, this gentleman here first, and then... Gentleman with the glasses in the second row, please. Um, this is this question sort of goes away from the issue of demogra- demographics. But in 1997, when Tony Blair won his first election, he used to speak about issues that people wouldn't expect Labour to talk about. For example, crime. His shadow Home Secretary Jack Straw bang on about tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And part of the problem we have today is, as a party, I don't think we speak about issues people expect Conservatives to talk about. For example, 
Corbyn will bang on at PMQs about poverty when we could probably think of more creative policies around that issue, and that would probably swing the demographics around for more people voting Conservatives, and therefore we can occupy the centre ground in order to win elections. And even for the same for Labour, Corbyn could talk about issues that people won't expect him to talk about, for example, countering terrorism, like he wants to, but just saying, um, I think, just talking about issues that as Conservatives should talk about okay. when no one expects us to might just help. Okay, and gentlemen here. Thank you. So if you could introduce yourselves as well, that'd be good. Oh, sorry, uh, my name's Andrew Atkinson. Um, what, what impact do you think that political tribalism has on this discussion? Because if we're trying to understand um, why people of certain demographics would vote a certain way, be they gay or BMA community or anything else, I, I would unscientifically assume that if you were a sort of dug-in, you know, from a dug-in sort of Labour family, Conservative family, and you would never vote another way, I've stood twice in Wrexham, and, you know, you can't shift certain voters until they reach this magic age of 47. Um, <laughs> But I would assume it would be the same, whether they were gay or whatever, that, you know, they would be affected by tribalism in the same way. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that, if you could share, please. Thank you. Okay, so the first one was, uh, I think what class is more of a comment, on uh, neutralising the weak spots, I suppose, would be the thing. I mean, is there actually, in terms of looking at, well, what's effective in campaigns, is that actually a good strategy? Shouldn't you focus on your strengths or... Should you aim to neutralise them or both? Yeah, you should, you, you should do both. I mean, it, it's, uh, you should address these, uh, address these concerns. And indeed, Boris Johnson and the rest of the Conservative Party is, has attempted to do that. I mean, the discussion about the living wage being the most obvious, uh, the obvious thing. The, the minimum wage was a Labour policy introduced by a Labour government. Uh, and now it's the Conservatives that, uh, that are proposing a greater increase and in, uh, uh, and more money than the, uh, than the Labour Party themselves. It strikes me that that's exactly what you're, uh, what you're talking about, and that was a major focus earlier this week. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, lots of studies show that young people are much more likely to be aligned around policy issues rather than political parties. Uh, and I think actually what Michael Gove has led... Uh, over the last few years on with the environment and climate change has been huge. I worked with someone who um, said she'd never thought she'd like a Tory until she met me, which I took as a great compliment. Um, but she used to send every Saturday, and still does, I think, every Saturday morning, um, sabotaging hunts, travelling around the country. And she came to me and said, you know, I never, ever thought I would say this, but I actually think I like Michael Gove. And, and that is, you know, to reach through to someone who feels that passionately and that strongly against this party by doing head down, get work done on the biggest policy issue that young people care about means that whilst they might think they don't like us, they are getting through uh, on these policy issues. And I think the other problem is more about reclaiming the narrative. We do very good policies, often in areas that we aren't expected to do uh, much on, but we're not very good at, at messaging it. We're not very good. You know, our work we did on um, giving mothers uh, childcare turned into an own goal. It turned into us criticising mothers who didn't work rather than actually supporting the women who did work. So actually I think it's a, it's a double edge. Make sure the policies are right. Make sure you're thinking about what people want and then make sure when you do the hard work, you actually get the credit for it. And what about this other question of tribalism? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, sorry, just no, in, no, in Coventry, um, I would knock on doors. Um, and this was a seat, if you'd asked them three months before the election was called, if they'd ever have a chance to win Coventry Northwest, I think they'd have laughed at you. Um, the number of doors I knocked on where people said don't tell anyone. You know, they, they knew we were collecting data. They said, please don't tell anyone. Um, I don't think my family will speak to me again, but I'm going to vote Conservative. So we have to think about how we can break through the taboo so that it isn't, uh, you know, a moral crime to vote Conservative and it is something you can do without, you know, being vilified by the people you're around. Yeah, I think um, it was a really interesting question. Um, sorry, what was your name again, sorry? Andy. Andy, um, because I, I personally, potentially, naively so, believe more in, like I said, geographical zoning. Because I think that factors such as race, gender, sexuality are such sort of cosmetic factors. And I feel that they don't actually affect your views as much as potentially where you live. For example, there are campaigns which unite, so like, uh, 
Lee Rowley, North East Derbyshire, fracking. Um, fracking, his constituency was being looked as like a hot spot for it. And so many people from different parties united behind him because of this one issue they could all agree on that they did not want fracking in their nice green area. And I personally think that potentially, yeah, tribalism will take place if it's on like a policy relevant to the area. So for like example, LGBT plus conservatives, um, the GRA, we get so many members writing about that. Um, but I think for more general policies, it tends to be more about how where you live and how that will affect your life. Uh, just picking up on that, tribalism is still hugely important in British politics. Uh, how your parents voted is still one of the main determinants for how you will end up, uh, end up voting. But in recent years, we have seen this evolve. Um, and that's thanks to, thanks to Brexit. There's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of academic work in this area looking at how the ties to, that we have to political parties have been declining and declining and declining uh, for many years. But the ties that we now have as a society to our Brexit identities are much stronger now. The question is, come a general election campaign, a national general election campaign, what happens to those? Because in 2017, there's some evidence to suggest that people flipped back to being, oh, well, I, you know, I don't like Corbyn or I don't like May, but at heart, I'm a Conservative. At heart, I'm a Labour supporter. The question is, will that happen in this general election upcoming where Brexit is likely to be an even more important issue? And will the, the, uh, the ties that bound people to their old tribes be replaced? We don't know. OK, another couple. Uh, Alex, back. And uh, there's a gentleman in a tie here in the front. So. Um, so I used to work for David Cameron. But I think the way that politics has gone is in some ways away from the push that he was making. And that if you look at centre-right parties across the Western world, almost all of the successful ones have been populist. And it'd be interesting to know from the panel uh, any counterexamples of that. Because I've asked some people and they've never they haven't provided any. But you know, sort of Denmark, Austria, um, in general, where the centre-right party hasn't collapsed, which is quite a lot of places, or been totally taken over, i.e., Trump, it seems to have at least reached an accommodation with sort of populist forces and drawn in voters who want to slow down the pace of change rather than sort of embrace it. And how does the Conservative Party deal with that? Okay. So one on populism. Hi, I'm Maxwell, a Kansas Justice Councillor. My question is, uh, what do you, to what extent do you think that identity politics is often used by politicians to distract away from their policies? I'm thinking, for example, Sadiq Khan and the fact he's, I don't know, a Muslim mayor or the way you pronounce his name, as opposed to his actual record in office. Okay. Um, can the Tories... You know, be electorally successful without making an accommodation to populism. I think a lot of the pundit class would probably say they already have. Um, <laughs> Reshan, do you want to come back on that one? Uh, I mean, look, I think it's naive to think that we as a party and politics in general has not shifted uh, significantly um, since Cameron. Uh, stood down and, and I would argue from well before um, we just were slow to keep up and I think actually you in, in a lot of cases politics and political parties are slow to evolve people move before you realise you need to move to catch up with them so we do need to think about a way to counter that and you know some people would argue we offered the referendum to deal with that and we're now trying to deliver on that but actually we have to work out a way to enable that expression of opinion and dealing with how people communicate with us in a way that means that we can continue to be successful in our current guise because the way younger people talk about issues, the way people want to express their thoughts and what people want from it is not going to be the way it was 10 or 20 years ago um, and unless we want an implosion or significant polarisation we're going to have to work out. I wish I could say I had the answer um, I don't, otherwise I think I'd be paid a lot more than I am now but um, but yeah, it's a real problem, and I don't know how we how we change fast enough to adapt. Um, Eleanor, anything on the lure of populism? Yeah, well, um, I've now googled what populism means because I did not know when it was said. Uh, so. Uh, a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by the established elite groups. 
I mean, I would say I'm, I'm pretty involved in politics, I'd like to think, and I still feel pretty ignored, and I see cabinet ministers most days at work. So I think if someone like me, who is in a position where I can see these people, and it's nothing important, by the way, I just work in Parliament, I don't have, like, loads of mates, but um, I think <laughs> if I still feel ignored and feel like I'm not being listened when I have this direct input then I think surely everyone does. And with regards to um, other examples, like across the other countries, stuff like that, what you said, um, I'm really bad at geography and I only just know about British politics. So I'll be completely honest, I cannot offer you any examples, so I'm very sorry about that. Uh, but I would say that I think everyone feels ignored in politics. Look at the MPs who've had the whips te- whip taken away from them. They're going to feel ignored. So I don't think it's necessarily the populism of people who don't get involved in politics, who might feel marginalised. I think it is everyone, because politics has become so divisive. And it's the parties used to be pretty, on the political compass, pretty close together. And everything is moving further and per- further apart. I mean, it's going to be harder to find compromise. And it's going to be harder to have a majority feel like they're included. But yeah, I hold my hands up. I, I can give you no examples of your requests. So I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> I think um, we kind of hit on there with the, you, the fact that you've got a definition out. I think populism is quite an ill-defined term. It's not often <laughs> something that... <laughs> often it feels to me as it's people who read The Guardian or The Independent putting a name on something that they don't like. So they just call it populist and bracket it with Donald Trump or Putin or something. Um, what do you think? LAUGHTER uh, it is an accusation that the term populist is used as a derogatory term to mean popular, but I don't like it. Uh, but it, it is more complicated than that. And, and actually, even, even counting populists together is uh, a bit of a mistake. It is more nuanced than that. You can look at things in terms of cultural populism. You can look at th- t- things in terms of economic populism. And the groups that identify with each of those uh, labels are in many cases, very different from one another. Uh, if you look at the Austrian election results just this, uh, just this week, you can see that there has been a backlash to some extent against the, uh, against the populist, uh, populist movement there. But, but comparing Britain to other countries is difficult in a lot of cases because of the difference in electoral systems. Uh, and how a parliamentary first-past-the-post system rewards populist movements, or rather doesn't, uh, places us in a very different perspective. You only need to look at the, uh, look at the performance in terms of share of the vote and number of seats of UKIP in previous elections to see how, uh, how their, in inverted commas, populist stance has been, uh, has been tempered in, uh, in terms of representation by the two main parties. Uh, to answer the question about identity politics, uh, everyone does it, don't they? Doesn't Sajid Javid or Sajid Javid stand up and, uh, and talk in Urdu uh, in, uh, in your speech? Uh, that, that's what I heard. Um, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that's a, a thing. Uh, and Sadiq Khan does it. And, uh, and lots, of, uh, lots of politicians uh, attempt to do it to varying degrees of, uh, degrees of success. Tony Blair, of course, would... Uh, would uh, pretend that he was from working-class communities and try and adopt their accent on occasions. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think it's, uh, it's an attempt, in all cases, to identify with the common person. Uh, so to say, I am not out of touch. I am not different. I am like you. Uh, I have a story to tell that may be different from yours, but one that you can, uh, you can relate to. And, uh, and I think it's something that all politicians on all sides do. I'd add, I think, I mean, it's something that all people do to a certain extent. We all know that, um, you know, we like people subconsciously that make us think of ourselves and other people like people who remind them of themselves. So it's very common to find, want to find that commonality and to do that through identity politics is often the easiest way. My concern is when it um, airs into a, a way of preventing people from being able to actually push back or to challenge opinions, to challenge policies and to challenge views. And I think sometimes when it comes to political correctness around that, we are into the, oh, you're being racist when you are 
critiquing someone because they've taken on that identity politics such strong way that you can no longer separate them from the identity that they have built and the story and narrative that they've built from themselves. So it's something that worries me because I see that. You see it on social media. Oh, are you criticising so-and-so uh, because of the policy and the idea they have or because you don't like them because of the colour of their skin or their gender? So it's something that worries me when politicians overplay it, but it's natural in all humans. OK. Um, we've got time for another clutch of questions before everyone heads to the bar. Um, so, uh, Frank at the front, and then a, there's a gentleman in a yellow tie behind him, and a gentleman at the back there, so we'll have three. Hello, um, my name is Frank, and I work for John. Um, <laughs> um, in an age of uh, increasing political fragmentation, I was wondering if there's any evidence of increased volatility or voter volatility amongst young people mm. to see if that might speak to all three panellists or whether it's just sort of hardening still into a kind of a classic left or right or conservative okay. Labour. So is change changing, I think? Is, yeah. uh, <laughs> change isn't what it used to be. Yeah. Aaron okay. Bell, uh, candidate Newcastle on the line. Um, Congrats, by the way. Thank you, Resham. Um, my question was about a demographic advantage we seem to have at the moment, that, that with the changes we've seen after the referendum, uh, the somewhere-anywhere dichotomy... All the mobile people are moving and pouring into the same seats and giving Labour absolutely disgusting huge majorities in places like Bristol West and Islington. Is that something we're going to keep lasting? Because it gives us a structural advantage. We've got lots of towns like my own, which we're doing better and better in the towns because all the young, dynamic mobile people are moving to the cities and giving Labour absolutely whopping majorities there. Is that going to last? Uh, is domestic sort of emigration helping the Tories? It's not. Okay. And one more. Yep, they're on there. Yeah, Randall Heather, uh, Wells constituency. Um, Asian vote, second generation versus first generation, and the fact that the Conservative Party of the four great offices of state, two are held by second generation Asians, and whether that's uh, meaningful in terms of uh, the Conservative Party's mm. pull to the Asian community. Okay. Um, so, uh, Joe, do you want to come in on volatility? Change is not what it used to be, as you said. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, there's, uh, there is definitely greater volatility and greater volatility among young people. But when we look at these things, we tend to look just at what geeks like me call the horse race. Uh, so which party is in the lead and strictly the party preference question. But there's also a really important issue of volatility when it comes to turnout whether someone decides to vote or not, because, of course, that can have a crucial impact on, uh, on elections. And I think that the, uh, the challenge facing Labour next time around will be to convince all those people who turned out to support Labour to turn out once again. I think that's, uh, uh, that's a challenge that is perhaps misunderstood by all parties but has the greatest risk to Labour. Anyone else want to come in on that? Yeah, I think um, just quickly with the volatility. I think we saw it a lot. Well, I personally saw it with young people. A lot of young Conservatives I know who, because of Brexit and the Euros, either then went and voted for the Brexit party or they went and voted Lib Dem because they were so sort of out of sorts with the Conservatives line where either it wasn't Brexit enough or it was too much. So I do think young voters can be quite volatile because I, like, I saw it all over Twitter, just people being like, no, I'm done with the party cutting up my membership card, and then about a week later they'd be having a photo of them with, like, a minister and switching back. So I do think it is something that is very sort of obvious. Um, I don't know why, but I think it is just maybe because when you're young it, you don't think politics has as much as an, of an influence on your life as much because you're not picking schools for your kids and stuff like that. So maybe it's because people feel their vote... It, it doesn't matter if they may make a wrong decision and do a protest vote because they've still got lots more time to live through it. And this other question then about are upwardly mobile young people leaving towns and going to cities and giving David Lammy and Jeremy Corbyn 40,000 majorities, does that amount to a structural advantage for the Conservative Party? 
I'll give you the economist's answer, which is yes and no. Um, if you look in 2017, we had some freaky results. We lost seats with majorities of up to 8,000, and then we saw some of our MPs, um, for no obvious reason that was apparent, returning the highest majorities they've ever had in their seats. Um, so, yes, it will help some. No, it will not help others. Um, I mean, half of all BME communities live in three cities, London, Birmingham, and Manchester. So, as that as we continue to see BME and uh, mixed BME communities continue to grow, they will spread beyond that. So I think for a short term, yes, it will help. But in the longer term, no, because people move. And what we'll see is young people moving into towns, but we know young people stop being young and start becoming old. Uh, and we'll see that continue to change. Um, in terms of the question about Pretty Patel and Sajid Javid, I mean, it has a huge impact on... Uh, communities. When I first started standing for Parliament and saying I wanted to be involved in politics, people would take me aside and say, what's a nice girl like you doing in politics? Because the politics of some of our home countries is, is not a place for a nice young woman. Um, and, and actually, I think we need to do a lot more to reach out to communities for whom politics wasn't or isn't the natural career path. So seeing Sadra Javid, seeing Priti Patel, on the main stage with the two great officers of state does a huge amount. But, you know, as we've heard, it takes time. It's not necessarily going to impact people who have voted Labour for 30 years, maybe their children. Um, but we do need to do more to get that, um, to talk to reach out to second-generation immigrants about why they shouldn't vote the same way their parents did. I just want to push you a bit on this idea. You've talked about reaching out, but I mean, where's the line drawn between being seen to be patronising, tokenistic and engaging with the community? Is it about visibility or is it changing your policy offer and saying, you know, especially in like the London mayoral um, elections, for example, there were very targeted policies for particular ethnic groups. Yeah, I mean, that was terrible because that was very obviously, um, you know, uh, we would like your vote, so here's a token effort uh, to getting it. Um, you can tell there's a difference. If, a, if an MP visits the temple or visits the Gurdwara or the mosque um, six weeks before an election and then doesn't go back for five years, it's very obvious what that's about. If you're the kind of MP or politician, local politician, who's engaging with these communities regularly, asking questions, wanting to learn, that says a huge amount. And so what we saw uh, in an election where someone didn't make a huge effort over years was that you weren't going to get that. When you ask about where the line is, I'm not suggesting you go to a BME community and say, hello, you, you know, lovely group of um, BME people who fit our aspirations but don't vote for us, this is why you should. I'm talking about go to schools as a member of parliament or as a candidate and just say, this is what it's like. I went to a school, Nick Curd is my MP, and I said to him, oh, Nick, take me with you to a school. And it was funny, all the BME people came to ask me what it was like to stand for parliament, not to him, because they said, well, you know, he's a white man who who fits in and looks like an MP. You don't, so you tell me. So actually it's just about sending people so they have someone to talk to so they can see that future for themselves. OK. Thanks very much. And Joe is now just going to round things off, I think taking up a few of the different points we've uh, discussed. Um, yeah, where, uh, where to start? The, the demographic advantage. I think the, the key battleground for the next general election will be the towns of England. Uh, and I use that term very specifically. Uh, I think that will be where the general election is won and lost for, for both of the main parties. And I would recommend to everyone to uh, devour the information coming out of the Centre for Towns, uh, which is uh, a think tank developed by uh, someone called Ian Warren, an academic called Will Jennings, and, uh, and the Labour MP Lisa Nandy. It's... Uh, it does a lot of really interesting analysis of what is happening in those, uh, in those areas because in some towns it is a demographic advantage, in others it is not. And, uh, and uh, it's absolutely right to say yes and, uh, yes and no. That is, that is hugely important. Uh, when it comes to uh, ethnic minority voting, there's a lot of evidence, not so much from this country, though there is some, but mainly from other countries, that showed that there is definitely a generational shift. And... Uh, second generation, third generation, fourth generation are significantly more likely to move away from the, if you like, iron law of left-wing support. 
Uh, and so that's something worth, uh, worth keeping in mind. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that sort of token efforts can hugely backfire. Uh, we don't need to be reminded of Zach Goldsmith in the London mayoral election being asked if he was a fan of Bollywood movies. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah so I'm a massive fan of Bollywood movies. <laughs> name a Bollywood movie. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and he couldn't even name Amitabh Bachchan, the famous uh, Bollywood, uh, Bollywood star, which I think is really remiss. It shows that you don't want to fall into the, the internet meme, Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids trap, um, which I, I must say I'm perhaps as guilty of as, uh, as anyone else. Uh, and so to summarise all of these things, I would just say that when we talk about ethnic minorities, BME voters, when we talk about LGBT plus communities, LGBT plus voters, it's always more complicated. And so this I would like to end as a, as a support for the ideas of nuance and grey areas. Lovely. Grey areas. Uh, guys, uh, it just remains for me to say thank you to all my panellists and to all of you for coming. Uh, enjoy the rest of the conference and thank you very much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.